the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue with our study in the book of Acts, Peter's escape from prison causes quite a stir, and God deals with Herod's prideful heart. We'll pick it up in Acts chapter 12, verse 18. The title of the message is, There is One God. Acts chapter 12, and we're going to try to get through a few verses in chapter 13 as well. Acts chapter 12. Well, remember the whole theme of the book of Acts is that Jesus is still working, right? He's not done, but now he's working through his church. And in particular, we're seeing him work through the apostles. And of course, we've seen other people like Philip that the Lord has used But in particular, we've had a great focus on Peter and what he's done. And the enemy, of course, as we saw in chapter 12, he kills James, Herod does, and then he arrests Peter with the intention of doing the same thing. But then the Lord thwarts those plans and sets Peter free. And so with Peter free and clear, the enemy's plans are foiled. Herod now has no prisoner to bring forth to appease the Jews. And most wicked men, especially powerful wicked men, do not like it when their plans are foiled. For they often see themselves as gods with the ability to wield their power over other men as they please, answerable to no one. How different than that is the Christian though, right? Not only do we recognize that we're answerable to him, but we yield to his plans and his purposes for our lives. And so as we see the contrast between the arrogance of Herod here at the end of chapter 12 and the submissive worship of these church leaders in Antioch at the beginning of chapter 13, May we follow in the footsteps of Barnabas and Saul, ministering to the one and only true master. So chapter 12, and we're going to pick it up in verse 18. Peter is now gone. He has set the word out. He's made sure people know that the Lord has set him free and go and tell these things unto James and to the brothers. But then he departs and we don't know where he goes from there. Well, verse 18, now, as soon as it was day, there was no small stir it says, among the soldiers, what was become of Peter? Can you imagine all of a sudden you're chained to this man? You think you're still chained to this man. And when the morning comes and they come for the prisoner and the chains are still there, but there's no prisoner. (laughs) The word there, stir, actually means in a state of acute distress and anxiety. And the reason is, is because if you were a soldier and you let a prisoner go free under your watch, you suffered the fate that prisoner was going to experience. And so there was great distress and anxiety among the soldiers of what had happened to Peter. And when Herod had searched for him and he did not find him, it says he examined the keepers. He conducted a judicial inquiry is what that word examine means. And 
that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea, and there he abode. I wonder in that time, Peter was there for multiple days because it says that Herod intended to bring him out at the end of the feast. So I wonder how many times Peter told him about the Lord. My first inclination is to read this and go, well, that kind of stinks. I mean, Peter got set free, but these guys die. But you know what? For those six, seven, eight, nine, 14 days, whatever it was that Peter was with him, I can't imagine he didn't tell him about the Lord. And that just goes to show you, you never know when your last day will be. The Lord had put someone in front of them to share the gospel with them. Whether they received or not, we don't know, but that was their last day. The Herod put them to death. You know, it doesn't look good when you're the king and something proves you're not the most powerful person. And so by executing these men, Herod could spread the rumor that they were unfaithful in their task and squash the rumors of a supernatural escape. Wanting to save face and avoid tangoing with a God more powerful than him, Herod decides to skip town. It says that he went down from Judea to Caesarea, and there he stayed. But God doesn't forget, verse 20. And Herod was highly displeased with them of Tyre and Sidon, but they came with one accord to him, and having made Blastus the king's chamberlain their friend, they desired peace, because their country was nourished by the king's country. Uh, Herod's going to have this meeting with the Phoenicians because he's angry with them. The word they're displeased means to be violently angry and on the verge of going to war. Not only has God shown him up, and now these guys are trying to show him up. Herod reigned over the Roman province of Syria, so he had no jurisdiction in Phoenicia. So we don't know why he was on the verge of fighting with them, but from what it appears here is that it was an economic dispute. And so these guys of Tyre and Sidon, they came with one accord down to him to talk to him because they had made Blastus the king's chamberlain. This was the guy who was over Herod's bedroom, so that would be a highly trusted court official. And they had won this guy over to their cause, and so they had made him their friend, and they were desiring peace. They, they were pleading for peace because they didn't want to go to war with Herod because their country was nourished or their food supply came from Herod. And so if they went to war, Herod would cut that off. So again, that what leads me to believe that this was a commercial issue. And so it says, upon a set day, verse 21, Herod arrayed in all his royal apparel, he sat upon his throne and he made an oration or delivered a speech to them. And the people gave a shout. They're trying to butter him up, trying to make him feel real good. They gave a shout. And the word there is in the imperfect, which means it was going on for a bit. They were shouting this over and over and over again. And the shout was, it is the voice of a God and not of a man. Yikes. (laughs) Never a good idea to accept worship from men that only belongs to God, especially if you're a wicked man. Verse 23. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not God the glory and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. Enjoy your lunch. Immediately on the spot, it happened right there. He was struck. The angel of the Lord smote him, struck him because he didn't give God the glory. And it says here, he's eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. Josephus writes, he put on a garment for this meeting made wholly of silver and of a contexture that was truly wonderful. And when he came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it is shown out after a surprising manner and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those that looked intently upon him. And presently his flatterers cried out one from one place and another from another, no, not for his good, Josephus says, that he was a god. Immediately a severe pain also rose in his belly and began in a most violent manner 
when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life. There's no way to fight God and win. We're going to learn about that tonight when we go through Genesis and we look at the Tower of Babel. There's, just, there's no way to thumb your nose at God, to shake your fist at God, and to win. And so Herod dies here, the third Herod mentioned in the Scriptures. He is not the one true God. The Bible says, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Well, it's not Herod. It's Jesus. And so verse 24 here we see, but the word of God grew and multiplied. In contrast to how God opposed Herod, he was with the church. In contrast to how Herod was struck down, the word of God spreads and multiplies. It's interesting, Luke equates success in our endeavor with the increased knowledge and influence of the scriptures. I like that definition of success. Psalm 138, verse 2, God has this to say. David says, I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and for your truth, for you have magnified your word above all your name. All of God's character, all of his attributes, all of when we talk about his holiness, we talk about his greatness, we talk about his love, all of those things God says, I have exalted my word even above that. God would rather have his word go into all the world than the knowledge of his holiness. Or obviously we're gonna get that from his word. He'd be more happy with the knowledge of his word going out into all the world than for all of us to get together and just talk about how holy he is or talk about how loving he is. Can you imagine that? When God's word spreads and impacts more people, that's because it affects our relationship with him. It affects our worship. It affects our service. It's the very thing that equips us. It thoroughly furnishes us to every good work. And that includes declaring how wonderful he is. It's his word that enables us to do so. My favorite worship songs are songs that talk about his word. Those are my favorite worship songs. Favorite songs that Christian artists do, they talk about his word in some way. If there was ever an end goal I had in my life, it would be to get solid teaching to every corner of the world. If there was ever an end game that I had in my life, what's the one thing I would love to see happen is to get solid teaching into all the world. Do you know how much it warms my heart when I hear about emails that we get from Kenya because the word of God is over there? Luke viewed success as the increasing knowledge and influence of the scriptures. The word of God grew and multiplied. Verse 25, it says, And Barnabas and Saul, they returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. Remember, prophets had come up to Antioch and they had said a famine was coming. And so the church at Antioch gathered together funding to bring down to the church at Jerusalem and they sent it by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And so they have done their duty and now they're returning from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. They arrive actually after Herod dies and at the end of this short persecution that he had upon the church. This is when they fulfilled their ministry, this offering that they had brought and took with them, they returned back. They took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now, interesting, John is a Hebrew name, but his surname was Mark, his Greek name, which shows that his parentage or his family life was probably Hellenistic. It was probably not the traditional Jewish family. They were probably much more secular in the way they had conducted their lives, the clothes they wore, the language they spoke. And so his name would know him more by Mark. And of course, if that sounds familiar, it's because he's the one that wrote the second gospel of Mark. But we'll learn more about him as we go through Acts. Now, the reason it brings us up here before we get to chapter 13 is because this is a segue to Antioch because starting in chapter 13, our focus will be 
on Antioch and what God does through Antioch. In fact, chapter 13 begins the second part of the book of Acts. For at this point, we're going to leave Peter and Jerusalem as the central hub of evangelism. No longer will we look at them in that way. The main focus will be Saul, who will become Paul very soon, and Antioch. Because unlike Jerusalem, the Gentile church at Antioch didn't drag its feet in spreading the gospel to all the world. It seemed like in every moment, Jerusalem had to be kicked and prodded and persecuted and whatever to get the word out. They kind of were very content to stay right where they were. It's almost like this idea, well, Jesus, you said you're going to come back. And so here we stay until you do. And yet our job is to go out into all the world and tell people about him so that when he returns, more people get to go with him. And so we see them now used in a much mightier way than Jerusalem has ever used, which brings up an important question are we dragging our feet in any way? Well, in chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Now there were in the church that was in Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manan, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And so as now the focus shifts from Jerusalem over to Antioch, we're introduced to these leaders here at Antioch, these five guys. Now it mentions that some were prophets and some were teachers. The word prophet here means to deliver or communicate a divine message. Their role in the church was to speak from God's heart to inform the church before we had the New Testament scriptures. God still operates through the gift of prophecy. And I hope, I hope, I understand our cessationist brothers. I understand it. I come from a little bit more of a a weird background in the sense that I've seen a lot of charismatic error. So I get it. I have the heebie-jeebies all the time whenever someone would talk about the Holy Spirit or whatever. I get it. I understand. But the idea of seeing things of the church that is done wrong, and therefore we're going to ignore clear scripture, we end up disemboweling the church. We end up disemboweling the power source where we derive all ability to accomplish the things that God has called us to do. Listen, I hope that you've already experienced the gift of prophecy today. Because if you haven't, then I'm not doing my job. The Bible says when the gift of prophecy is in operation, that you are exhorted or you are comforted or you are edified, you're built up in your faith. And if we gather for church and no one's being comforted, no one's being exhorted, and no one's being built up in their faith, then we're a sorry sort. We're a sorry sort. So to say that, oh, this gift isn't in operation today because there's some weirdo people out there in Kansas City who predict all sorts of things in the future that never come to pass, that's fine. But then we're missing out on what we're really gathered for. I don't know about you. I'm not here to fill up your minds with knowledge and hopefully you walk away and go, man, that guy's really smart and I feel smarter too. And so now we know the Bible better. And so now we can go take on all these people who are dumb. We chuckle, but you know, the church has that reputation sometimes. Our goal is to win the lost, not an argument. Our goal is to change lives, to impact lives. If my legacy or your legacy is just that we made people a lot smarter and they'd vote a certain way and they'd vote for certain people, then we've not accomplished our purpose. There are people going to hell all around us. And our Jesus bled and died so that they didn't have to. We need power from on high. I think God is speaking in my life. Please pray for us as leaders. We're going to this conference. Every year, this is an important part for me to hear from God, to get revitalized, to get strengthened, to get rebuked, to get corrected, to get challenged, to have my feet set to the fire and say, Will, what are you doing? What are you wasting time on? So my hope today is that this gift is in operation 
as the Word of God is taught. In Antioch, this role was similar to that of a pastoral role, the idea of speaking into people's lives that they might be able to be edified and challenged in their walk with the Lord. The teachers, their main focus was to instruct God's people so they could understand what his word meant. It's not that we shouldn't have that. That's important. In fact, the pastor needs to do both. That's why when we look at Ephesians chapter 4, it talks about the ministry gifts. There's apostles, there's prophets, there's evangelists, and then there's pastor teachers. Some of you may have heard this idea of a five-fold ministry. It's not biblical. That last one is not two different ministries. It's one. It's the pastor-teacher. His role is to speak into people's lives as he helps people to understand what the Bible means so that they can apply it to their lives. That's the role of a pastor. That's the role of what we gather together here. Why we break the bread of life. We open the word and we study it all the way through from Genesis to Revelation, not wanting to miss a single word of God because all of it's required for us to be thoroughly equipped to every good work. The job of a pastor, the job of a Bible teacher is to help people to understand what it means. In Nehemiah 8.8, I think it gives a great description of this role. It says, so they read in the book of the law of God distinctly, and they gave the sense, and they caused them to understand the reading. Doesn't that sound like a good approach to teach in the Bible? To read it in a way that, have you ever had that where somebody reads it, just they read a passage and you go, oh, that makes way more sense. I had the greatest pastor. Pastor Chuck would teach, and he would cover sometimes 10 psalms in one Bible study. And he would go through the psalm, and he wouldn't hardly even comment on it. He'd go, oh, praise the Lord. And he'd go on to the next one. But here's the thing, though. He read it in such a way that the inflection of words was in the right spot, so that as you heard him read it, you understood the passage. It's crazy. He would read it and it would just light up for you and it would come to life and you'd understand it in a way you never had before. It's because he knew it. He was intimate with it. He understood it. He had applied it to his life. And so when he read it, he read it with personal conviction, with personal passion, with personal application. It wasn't just words on a page. It was words from his heart. He knew it. And when he read distinctly, people understood it better. He didn't have to make a comment. Now, the way the Greek is constructed here, it shows who were the prophets and who were the teachers. It shows that Barnabas, Simeon, and Lucius were the prophets. Manan and Saul were the teachers, which I think is interesting. Saul was not a prophetic type of person. He was more of a teacher. And that was more of where he felt comfortable with. He loved that role. He loved, of course, being out and sharing his faith, particularly with the Gentiles. But the thing that he really enjoyed was discipling believers, teaching them the Bible and helping them to understand it. Now, of course, Saul and Barnabas stand out. We don't know who these other guys are because the story is going to leave these guys shortly and it's going to go right to Barnabas and Saul and follow them. But it shows us here that God knew their names and he knew what they did in the church and he valued the role that they played there at Antioch. Do you know that God values the work that you do here at Calvary Chapel, Orlando? Or if you're visiting with us at your home church, do you know that he values it? Even if nobody out here ever shook your hand and said, thank you, and I hope we do, but even if nobody ever did, if nobody gave you a hug and said, I appreciate you, do you know that the Lord values all the work that you do? He sees. Keep being faithful. Verse two, it says, well, lastly here, Manan here, it says he brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and 
That's interesting because it means a lot of times when you were a, a government official, if you had an in with that government official, your kids were all raised by the same tutors. They were all raised by the same trainers and whatnot. And so you would live oftentimes in that palace or in that place where the governor would reside. All the kids would live there because they'd be brought up by these tutors. And so they're almost like foster sons. And so this guy was a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch when he was younger. And this shows that the gospel had penetrated even the upper levels of society and not just the poor. The gospel's for everyone because everybody needs a savior. Amen? <laughs> well, verse two, these leaders, these guys here, these prophets and these teachers, what do we find them doing? Verse two, it says, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted. These guys set aside a time of worship and prayer. The word there, ministered, our word liturgy grows out of this usage. It means the performance of worship and prayer. So these five guys, they decided to gather together regularly to bless the Lord and to seek his face. And in preparation for this time of seeking God, they would fast beforehand. So they'd fast before and they'd come together and their whole heart is, I don't know if like Saul got out the mandolin or whatever, or Lucius got out the harp. I don't know what they did or if they just did it a cappella. and they would just worship the Lord. They would declare his greatness and they'd seek his face. And I love that. In fact, this passage here in chapter 13, verses one through three here is probably my heart more than anything else for what I want our church to be. Notice here, it says they ministered to the Lord, not for the Lord. Yes, they wanted to hear from God and they were doing it also because they wanted to seek his face. They wanted him to speak back, but it was primarily a time to pour out their love to him. And let me ask you a question. Do you have a time where you worship God each day, where you just pour out your heart to him? I'm not just talking about singing. I'm talking about, we just tell him how great he is. I like to pray in the morning. I'll go outside on the porch sometimes, or I'll do it in the bedroom or in the shower. Or I'll usually continue it in the car. And you've got kind of your routine. You know, I've got I've to pray for me and my family and want to pray for the church and people in the church and pray for missions and pray for my lost friends who need the Lord or people I know that need the Lord. And uh, sometimes you just kind of get going in the routine. I'll be in the car driving down here and the Lord will be like, hey, uh, remember me? Hey, just begin to tell him how great he is. Tell him how thankful you are. Tell him how wonderful he is. Talk about all his attributes. Do you have a time where you worship God each day where you pour out your heart to him? Do you have a group that you intimately worship God together with and seek his face? As leaders, are we doing that? And if you lead a ministry here at Calvary Chapel Orlando, do you have your team? Do you gather with them just for the purpose of ministering to the Lord? You do a lot of ministry. We all do for the Lord, right? But do we take time to minister to the Lord? We've been called into relationship with him and with one another before anything else that we can do for him. And so it's far more important, our relationship with one another and him than anything we can do for him. Now, real quick, it mentions here that they had fasted as well as ministering unto the Lord. They were fasting in preparation for this time of worship. What is fasting? Well, fasting is when we go without food for a set period of time to seek the Lord. And I say, why would any reasonable person ever do that? <laughs> well, every time your body reminds you that it's hungry, it's a time where you can tell your body you're not in charge. My spirit's in charge, the part of me that fellowships with God. Remember, we were going through Genesis, and I talked about how God made us in his image. He made us similar to him, and man is an inferior trinity, body, soul, and spirit. And when God originally designed us, it was with the spirit in charge, the soul in subjection to the spirit, and then the body in subjection to all those. The idea is that the part of us that fellowships with the Lord is in submission to him. It's on top. It's what runs our lives. 
But when we sin, when Adam and Eve sinned and how we're born into this world, our spirit is dead. We come into this world spiritually dead. The part of us that fellowships with God, dead. And so when we are saved, we're born again. That's why it's called born again or born from above, spiritually born, is that our spirit is quickened, Ephesians says. It's brought back to life. And now begins the battle of rearranging that thing, of the spirit now, God trying to conform us to his image so it's in charge and the body is on the bottom again. And in fasting, we're basically taking a moment where we're saying, this is the case. Body, you are not in charge. The part of me that wants to hear from God, the part of me that fellowships with God, that is in charge. So it's to tune my spiritual ear to his voice that I might be more yielded to him in an area or areas of my life. Oftentimes we'll fast and pray to seek the Lord. I don't know what to do, Lord. I want to hear your voice clearly. I need to get this thing out of the way. Now, fasting is sadly an often neglected part of American Christianity. You won't hear it taught very much. But Jesus taught that it should be a regular practice in our lives. In Matthew chapter 6 on the Sermon on the Mount, he said these words, starting in verse 16, he said, Moreover, when you fast, don't be as the hypocrites. You notice he doesn't say if you fast. He says, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have the reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that you appear not unto men to fast, but unto your father, which is in secret, and your father, which sees in secret, shall reward you openly. So it should never be used as a way for me to display my personal piety to others, but we should be doing it. How many times do we make bad decisions because we don't take time to really seek the Lord, to really hear his voice, to get direction from him. James 4, 6 tells us that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Herod was full of pride, and it cost him everything. May we instead be humble before our God, like Paul and Barnabas. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407 523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.